This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you politics without the boring bits. You can listen live weekdays from 10 on your DAB radio, download the Times Radio app, or just ask your smart speaker to play Times Radio. Coming up on today's episode, in our big thing today, we are polling in the deep. It's four years since the 2019 election. Happy election day to those who celebrate. So we're going to take a look at what's happened to the Tory voters who put Boris Johnson into number 10. And we'll crunch the numbers on all the other parties as well. So that's coming up in just a moment. But first, it's a Tuesday, which means it's a how to win an election day. Here's a little teaser of today's episode. Strong and stable podcasts strike up the band. Right, it's absolute arrogance. Let's be fair to Ed Miliband. To be fair to Ed Miliband. This is your new catchphrase. Can I try to be genuinely fair to him? Here we are again then. Welcome along. Episode 7 of How to Win an Election. I'm Matt Chorley, joined by our podcast pundits, uh, Peter Madison, Polly McKenzie and Daniel Finkelstein. Get in touch Get in touch if you want to. Uh, you can email us howtowin at thetimes.co.uk. Howtowin at thetimes.co.uk. People have been getting in touch, mainly some with questions, but we've had another we've had another version of the theme tune sent in. Oh, groan. Some, so we love it when people get in touch. <clears throat> um, so this is uh, a group of people. Now, you should remember they're raising money for charity, for a children's hospice in Oxford. This is outside Whitney... Uh, no, in, oh, outside Waitrose in Whitney. Um, so uh, they raised a lot of money, apparently, for the Helen and Douglas House, uh, a children's hospital in Oxford. This is Cuth, Patrick, Dave, Andrew and Richard. Wait, wait. 
I, I'm very, very sorry I said grow. I think it's great <laughs> and I want to make a personal contribution. Well, there we are. Yeah, well, so let's do that. that. Can we'll I ask you yes. about this strike up the band thing, which, yes. which you're starting every break up? Did that occur to you before you got a band to play? Or was it when, a spontaneous response? And It was a spontaneous that, response. And then you did it the first week and you thought it was so successful, did you, yes, that you exactly. were going to repeat it every yeah, week? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. I think we, we spent enough we spent enough on the, the package to have four instruments, so I think that's a band. <laughs> anyway, thank you. Thank you to Cuth, Patrick, Dave, Andrew and Richard, and well done for raising lots of money. And if you want to send in your version, how to win at the times.co.uk. How to win at the times.co.uk. And if you were in uh, Waitrose uh, in Whitney, sorry. Um, <laughs> now, we've had, a, we've had another email from Martin McLeish in London, uh, which is going to sort of set the tone for today's uh, episode. How, his question is, how much money are political parties allowed to spend during their election campaign, which got us thinking about money. The answer is the government is uh, looking at increasing the amount that parties can spend to about £35 million, up from just under £19 million at the 2019 election. Uh, although the amount you can spend still depends on how many constituencies you're standing in. So that's the sort of the top-line thing. But it got us thinking about money, how you spend it, how you raise it, how important it is to win an election. Um, we had some pretty striking figures uh, the other day. The Tories are on track to raise £50 million this year. Um, Danny, who on earth is giving fifty million pounds to the Tory Party pe right pe now? People who don't want a Labour government. I mean, it's as simple as that. That's how the Conservatives raise m money. Uh, people who think if the Labour Party gets in, they're going to tax uh, capital gains or they're going to tax forms of business investment for small businesses, and that's where the Conservative Party gets its money from. So. Um, Oddly, the, the sort of nearer, more imminent a Labour government is, the more the concern... I mean, obviously, partly it's because the election's coming and people want to contribute to the election campaign, but the more money uh, you will, you'll raise. And there's also almost certainly going to have been a shift uh, to raise more money for Rishi Sunak over Boris Johnson um, because of uh, political differences between them and their attitudes to business. I, I, I suspect that's the case. Anyway, that is a guess. But... It, but, but the Tories are going to raise, th uh, raise three times as much as Labour in the last quarter. Is it just totally out of self-interest, then, a few rich people saying, I want to try and bolster the no, Tories? Because no, uh, an independent bystander might look at what's currently going on with the Tory government and think, why on earth would you give well, them a penny? This is... This this, there's one of the most important things to understand about uh, political attitudes is that everyone thinks their self-interest is in the public interest. It's a <laughs> very, very important thing. So, for example, you know, when the nurses go on strike, uh, obviously it's a strike over their own pay, but all the arguments will be about this is about patient safety and about uh, you know nurses not being tired and nurses being remunerated for the public good and and without getting into the argument over whether that's right or wrong, that's what that's people what feel. Saying, so yeah. business people will certainly feel that an entrepreneurial climate that encourages them uh, will encourage uh, other people and will be good for the economy. So that people are not able to distinguish in that way between their own interests and the country's. Yeah, I mean, Dan is being very generous to these people. I mean, <laughs> basically, I mean, as you said, Danny, people are act out of self-interest. I mean, they want to keep more money of their own in their own pockets and wallets and they think a Labour government would be more redistributive, would be fairer for the country as a whole. But the flip side of that is that high-value donors, rich people, who do give money to the Labour Party are doing so because of their values. I mean, they're doing so because they believe in what the Labour Party stands for, what the Labour Party would do for and with uh, the country. And I think that's sometimes often forgotten. 
I mean, people think, well, they're only in, in it for themselves, they're only giving money because they can get something back. I think in mo mo most cases, most of the high-value donors yeah. I know in the Labour Party are people who are genuinely sort of philanthropically inclined. Many of them have educational, environmental, social mobility programs. They use their money. They want to leave some sort of legacy. They're thinking about the future. And giving money to the Labour Party is part of yeah, that. They, 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 well, just to give an example, uh, highly educated people who earn a lot of money might think the Labour Party would be good for highly educated people. Uh, so uh, uh, what I'm saying is this attempt to distinguish... Uh, just to be clear, people who are uh, who believe in cutting taxes, um, you might say, well, that'll put more money in their pockets. That's true, but it's also true that they, and in fact, I actually agree with them, uh, think that if you dry, you know, encourage entrepreneurship and more people make more money, uh, I mean, which is something I'm entirely relaxed about, Peter. Um, we'll, uh, <laughs> as long as you know, they pay their taxes. <laughs> as long as they pay their taxes. Um, you know, if they do that, then the country will benefit from it. So it's different ways of, of looking at it. But, I, you know, there's a temptation to say that if, if I give you a pound, uh, that is... Um, Philanthropy, but if you give me a pound, it's theft. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't. I think the Conservative Party believes that creating a more entrepreneurial climate is in the national interest. That's just important to understand, even if you disagree with that notion. Polly, have you been tempted when you've seen what's going on in the Tory party with the infighting and the resignations and the state of the economy and public service, have you been tempted to give them any money? I did once give £5 uh, to the Conservative Association at my university in return for a muffin. Um, what? Which, yeah. Some muffin? That's a lot. Yeah. I, I'd want a whole cake for that. <laughs> it was. I was caught at a weak moment and it was so that somebody's boyfriend could... It was... Anyway, it's one of my profound regrets, obviously. <laughs> um, the, the funny thing about all of this... There was a lot it, going on with the sentence so that somebody's boyfriend that we didn't get to the end of. I, I, no, <laughs> it, it's a long, yeah, it's it's a longer yeah, story. Yeah, it's a but it was a good muffin. Yeah. Um, so... We all get the opportunity to think about this when we vote, right? Should you be voting in your own interests or should be voting for the interests of the country? And, you know, we all of us make a balance of that. What Peter and Danny are talking about is the fact that rich people get to do that basically times millions and millions of pounds because the amount of money we allow to be spent in our politics means that, to a very large extent, you're talking about a, a battle of marketing budgets instead of a battle of ideas. And... There actually is another way. It's very easy to get uh, lost in this idea that it's just completely normal for people to have spare millions of pounds is that they want to give to political parties. You could constrain the amount of money that we spend on our elections. If one party is spending £35 million, it'd be nice if the other party was able to spend £35 million. But it doesn't work that way. And of course, you then end up with lots of smaller parties who either have a billionaire or multimillionaire on their side or else that they don't and they're never able to compete in terms of the literature in terms of the uh, digital spend you know there are multiple ways to do this you can just massively cap the amount of money that parties are allowed to spend or you can have state funding for political parties people don't tend to like that because they uh, don't like the idea of their taxes which ought to be paying for i don't know incubators or roads or something going to fund political parties which people don't tend to like but, but the we do, alternative but we do have, we do is... We have some already, you know, in, the, in terms of short money. There is yeah. taxpayers' money which goes to the opposition to prepare them for... But in 2006, in the sort of Blair twilight year, um, he asked Sir Hayden Phillips, an eminent civil servant, to head up a committee to look at state funding 
uh, for political parties. I mean, beyond the short money, beyond the money that's given for opposition. And they actually got very far in uh, capping uh, additional transparency, um, state funding, as I've said. And Cameron was nearly over the line. He had one qualification, which was that in the longer term, the trade unions needed to you know, look at how much they were giving and they needed some cap, further cap on that. But he couldn't get Gordon Brown over the line. Uh, Gordon, possibly because, you know, it was Tony's idea or <laughs> and or because he was looking to the trade unions and playing to that particular gallery. Um, he blocked it, I mean, insanely, because when it came to fighting the election in 2010, of course, he could have done with that state money. He really needed a, another bob or two to fight that election because so he couldn't I'm, raise money of his own. I'm, I'm against it for, like, two reasons. One, for the... I just don't want to personally be compelled to to donate to Richard Tyson Nigel Farage um, but but I but I also think if we're arguing that people give money to political parties that they hope to kind of influence the political parties in their direction by donating why do we think the state will be any different to that very quickly you will have an argument over whether or not the public ought to be uh, allowed or forced to fund certain types of speech um, it, it won't take long before people will say, well, that leaflet by the Liberal Democrats that argued it was a two-horse race was a lie. People shouldn't be able to lie in leaflets, therefore they shouldn't do this. This advert about Tony Blair with the devil eyes was, you know, an insult to Christianity and it shouldn't be allowed. Satanic. Um, uh, satanic. <laughs> and, and, you know, that, that joke, that was an argument. And by the way, you know, the, the, the Advertising Standards Authority uh, did stop that advert running, or at least it would have done if anyone wanted to run it again. It would have stopped them. So... I, I'm, I think it's not a very good idea. As it happens, I'm a bit dubious about the whole impact that all these donations make. And I, you know, if I were looking at the most um, economical way of spending a lot of money, it certainly wouldn't be a donation to a political party. I don't actually think, in fact, it alters the election results all that much. But um, but Peter and Polly made. made disagree. And then, Polly, being uh, involved in the, the third party, as the Lib Dems then were, and then later the Women's Equality Party, you know, if they are going to put up the spending limits, the only two parties who are going to hit, be able to hit those are probably Labour and the Tories, which just actually creates an even bigger gulf between the two main parties and all of the other smaller parties. Oh, massively. I mean, that that's why the, the two main parties, they want more than anything to protect their kind of two-party hegemony, uh, the ability for them to essentially pass power between one and another. Of course, they prefer when they're in power themselves, but at least uh, the simplicity of the pendulum is is better than the kind of the complexity of, you know, 15 different political parties and the kind of plurality of opinion and voices. And, and so, therefore, that high spending limit absolutely reinforces a two-party system. Um, I think it's I think it's just unbelievably harmful. Peter Manderson, Polly McKenzie and Daniel Finkstein there. And of course, if you want to listen to the full episode, just head over to How to Win an Election wherever you're listening to this. But not before you finish listening to this episode. Up next, it's Polling in the Deep. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Four years ago today, Britain went to the polls and voted in Boris Johnson's Conservative Party with a landslide 80-seat majority. Here's a little reminder of what happened. Let's get Brexit done and let's bring this country together. Go forward to win an election for the people of this country. Today I am standing here as your candidate for Prime Minister. This announcement today prevents a second referendum from happening. Our future should be ours to determine, not imposed upon us by the likes of Boris Johnson. Yet, wouldn't you like to take this opportunity tonight to apologise to the British Jewish community? Brexit, our NHS will never be for sale. Right, he's been taken inside, into the freezer. He's gone into the fridge. Done. What present would you leave under the Christmas tree for each other this year? A Christmas carol. Uh, a copy of uh, my brilliant Brexit deal. Anyone else starting to find Jeremy Corbyn really sexy? Are you taking my phone put it in your pocket, Prime Minister? We are now in a position to say that this election of 2019 formally has been won by the Conservatives. Get Brexit done. This morning I, I went to Buckingham Palace. I am forming a new government and I'm proud to say that members of our new One Nation government, a people's government, will set out from constituencies that have never returned a Conservative MP for 100 years. And yes, they will have an overwhelming mandate to get the Wow. Blimey, that took me back. Blimey, O'Reilly's four years ago today, Boris Johnson won 44% of the popular vote, the highest percentage since any party, uh, for any party, since Margaret Thatcher in 1979. But now, just four years later, are they facing wipeouts in an election next year? Today, the headline polls have got Labour on 45%. Not far from where the Tories were in 2019. Tories down on 22%. Reform UK on 11%. The Lib Dems on 10 The Greens on 7%. Well, to mark today's anniversary, Keir Starmer's been giving a speech in Milton Keynes, criticising the government. Yeah, I'm afraid the circus is back in Westminster again today. And, and people often say to me, all this is great for you, isn't it? But I have to say, honestly, No. Because it's not just politics, is it? It's the whole country. We're all stuck in their psychodrama. 
all being dragged down to their level. And that's what they just don't understand. While they're swanning around self-importantly with their factions and their star chambers, fighting like rats in a sack, there's a country out here that isn't being governed. So that's Keir Starmer there, reflecting on uh, where the Conservatives are, but also saying that the Labour Party lost its way uh, four years ago and he's had to uh, renew it uh, in the past four years to get it in a position of, of being able to win a general election. So, uh, to mark four years since uh, the uh, general election and see what's happened to the voters now, it's time for this. Polling. Yeah, we are going polling in the deep. Polling in the deep. Do you see? Uh, with a top panel of top pollsters, according to their own polling anyway. Uh, Patrick English is Director of Political uh, Analytics at YouGov. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. Good to have you with us. Uh, Kieran Pedley is Research Director at Ipsos. Hi, Kieran. Hi, Matt. And in the studio with me, Scarlett McGuire is a Director at JL Partners. Scarlett, how are you? Hi, Matt. Nice to see you. So let's start then, as, a, as we go polling in the deep, let's start with the Conservatives. Where have the people who put Boris Johnson in number 10 in 2019 gone? Uh, Patrick? Yeah, very good question. So around half of them are still telling us at the moment they would vote for the Conservatives again. Now, it's not a lot, let's be frank. In fact, it dips anywhere really between 40 to 50 percent. So there's around about half, maybe even more, of those who put Boris Johnson in number 10, as you said at the top of the segment, with that big, big, big victory, are now saying that they won't back the party again. Hefty amount of them are currently telling us they simply don't know who they're going to vote for. And at the minute, they a lot of them also say they won't turn out either. Around somewhere between around about 10% of that coalition that put Boris Johnson into power currently telling us they'd vote Labour and around a similar amount are saying they'd vote for Reform UK. So they're kind of scattered everywhere. And I think this is one of the big problems that Sunak and the Conservatives face is that, in fact, their coalition is splintered in all different directions. And it's very difficult for them to make an offer, to make an appeal, to make sort of set an agenda, which is able to pull back all those different bits of the coalition which have, they've lost in all those different many angles. Yeah, the more they might move in one direction to try and shore up one side, they lose more out to the other side. Um, Scarlett, lots of talk about the red wall, the red wall voters. I was interested to see, uh, I'm constantly interested to see places that then get now lumped into the red wall. I think Dorset appeared to be in uh, <laughs> one point of the weekend. Um, are, is there anything particularly unique about the red wall voter? Or are they much the same as most other voters, do you think? Uh, I think at the moment they share relatively similar concerns mm. to the rest of the electorate, which is a sort of despair at the state of public services, um, feeling the cost of living biting them quite hard, and actually, you know, and concern about immigration. I think um, the thing about the red wall voters at the moment, and I know we've done a lot of focus groups with them, um, Matt, is that they are uh, seem particularly um, disenfranchised with the current Conservative Party and not very enamoured with Labour either. And that whole idea that, you know, as Boris Johnson said, I think the morning after the election, lent. People, let, people had lent them their votes and now they're like, well, what was the point in that? Exactly. Yeah. I think that's exactly it. Um, what's your reading of it, uh, Kieran, in terms of uh, where those voters have gone? And is it possible for the Conservatives to sort of put back together that coalition? So I think to echo slightly what Patrick was talking about, they've, they've gone in several different directions, although maybe we'll come on to reform um, a bit later. There is some disagreement amongst pollsters about just the level of support that reform have. But I think in terms of putting that voter coalition back together, clearly the Conservatives have to focus on the issues that matter most 
to voters. And on the one hand, immigration is a very, very important issue, particularly for their voting coalition from 2019. Um, in fact, it, in our Ipsos Issues Index, immigration vies with the economy for the number one issue amongst conservative supporters. But then when you look at the country as a whole, and bear in mind that Labour are somewhere between 40-45% in the polls, Labour supporters tend to focus on other things, like the cost of living and the state of public services. And our numbers even show housing above immigration as an issue for Labour supporters specifically. So really, the Conservatives have got to have an offer on the key issues that matter to voters. And Rishi Sunak's pledges just over a year, or just under a year ago, I should say, were pretty much in line with the types of priorities that voters have. The problem at the moment is he doesn't seem, the public don't think he's delivering on pretty much any of them. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think that the pledges were um, actually basically pretty spot on in that they were talking about NHS waiting lists, the economy and um, boats and you can and immigration. You can talk about the wording of it getting inflation down or whatever. Um, but increasingly, I think the biggest problem is there's a real sense that the government isn't governing very well and hasn't been for some time. And I think that's what's going to really destroy them in 2024. But an interesting point, uh, Patrick, about, about immigration is the, the Conservatives focusing on that because that's the top concern amongst those people who are still planning to vote Conservative, but it's not the top concern of the people who have switched to the Labour Party. And by sort of banging on about that, to use the phrase that David Cameron did, but, you know, we've got to stop banging on about Europe. By banging on <laughs> about immigration, banging on about Rwanda, actually, there's a the risk that they're, all they're doing is they're, they're, the, the people who are still with them are even crosser. But what they're not doing is peeling any of them back from those people who've moved elsewhere because they've got other concerns, housing, the NHS, schools, hospitals and all that sort of thing. Yes, indeed. And you can sort of see the logic as well, because immigration is as well the number one issue among 2019 Conservative voters. So that very coalition that put Boris Johnson into number 10, it is the top issue there. It wasn't when they started first talking about it so much as they do. One of the effects of prioritising that in sort of the public statements and the, the, the policy exchanges, I guess, was to really raise that as an issue among Conservative 2019 voters. However, what it also did is it raised the profile and it made people think and talk a lot about an issue where the British public resoundingly think the Conservatives have done a very, very, very bad job. Around 80% of the public think the Conservative government have done a bad job on immigration. And the Conservative government then went and said, OK, let's talk a bit more about this and let's put this higher up on the agenda. And that's had two effects. One is, is it has sort of crystallised, I think, a little bit among some Conservative voters that, you know, this is an issue. We do care about this. We want to see something done. And the government look like they might be trying to get something done but also we've noticed that it's pushed voters toward reform uk as well a lot of voters for whom immigration is a top issue a lot of conservative voters for whom immigration is a top issue actually now saying well yeah you're right immigration is important you're doing a terrible job so i'm going to go vote for reform uk instead just before we move on to uh, to other parties um who wants to to sum up rishi sunak's personal ratings uh, you're wincing at the very idea, Scarlett. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, they're pretty terrible. Um, they're very bad. And I think uh, what what's particularly... he is, I think the COVID inquiry is actually quite a good reminder of the fact that it's really easy to forget that he was at one point sort of by far and away the most popular politician in the country. Uh, he's now unpopular with pretty much everyone, um, you know, including those Conservative 2019 voters. Uh, and his popularity is tanked elsewhere. And I think the problem is, the biggest thing for him is that he came in, um, he came into number 10 with claims to competence, uh, sort of strength, a technocratic uh, ability to make decisions. And all of that's been stripped away from him and it's not really left him with much else. Yeah, just looking... Sorry, go on. I was just going to say, um, Matt, so when you look at his uh, net satisfaction ratings, so people will know you subtract the negative from the positive. His net satisfaction ratings of Ipsos at the moment are minus 45. And that's pretty much in line with Boris Johnson and Theresa May's 
just before they were ousted. So we really should shouldn't underestimate just how far his ratings have fallen. He's he's seen as quite out of touch uh, with the voters, which Conservative prime ministers can kind of get away with in historic terms. Um, David Cameron springs to mind in, in his polling if they're seen as doing a good job on the public priorities and if they're seen as a capable leader. But unfortunately for Richie Sunak at the moment, um, the jury is very much out slash against him on that. Right, it's time to look at Labour. Polling. Yeah, like a polling stone, a polling stone gathers no moss. Uh, let's take a look at the Labour Party's polling now. Uh, Patrick, take us through the numbers then for uh, for Labour overall and Keir Starmer. Is it the case that some people say that the uh, that Labour the Labour Party is out polling Keir Starmer? That the people are sort of saying we're going to vote for Labour because we're unhappy with the Tories, but how is he actually doing? Uh, do people want him as Prime Minister? Certainly the public are a lot less sure on wanting Keir Sharma as Prime Minister than they are that they want to vote for the Labour Party in terms of the headline votes intention. That's definitely the case. So Keir Starmer is not a overwhelmingly popular leader. He's not someone who most voters see as ready to be prime minister. He kind of leads Sunak on that metric, somewhere between five and ten points, depending on the, the time of day and which pulse you ask. But Labour are, of course, around 20 points ahead in headline vote intentions. So they are doing significantly better in terms of, I guess, convincing the public that they are the party of government or the party government in waiting than Keir Starmer is in doing, saying that he is a better prime minister than Rishi Sunak. However, we must remember a very important thing. 2019 taught us a lot of things, but one of the most fundamental, I guess, uh, truths that came out of it is that you can be an unpopular leader, or at least not a very popular one, as Boris Johnson was, and still win, and win well, if you're facing a more unpopular leader, as Jeremy Corbyn was in 2019, and as now... Uh, as, as Richard Sunak is now. So even though Starmer's position is not fantastic with the public, relatively speaking, it's significantly better than Sunak's and that could really be the difference maker. Uh, Kieran Pedley from Ipsos, is it aside that gap between Labour's polling and Keir Starmer's polling, is that an indication that their poll lead is soft? They actually, that people haven't made their minds up that they want Keir Starmer to be Prime Minister and therefore could be persuaded elsewhere? Well, it's funny, just to uh, build on what Patrick was saying, when you look at the net satisfaction ratings of Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak at the moment, they're almost the reverse of what Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson had going into the 2019 general election. So um, without having the, figure, the exact figures in front of me, Boris Johnson was around the minus 20 mark. I think Jeremy Corbyn was at minus 44. We now, as I've said, in November had Sunak on minus 45 and Keir Starmer at uh, minus 21. So um, in many ways, you know, that, that shows you, doesn't it, that in 2019, the Conservatives won a large majority and perhaps Labour will, let's wait and see, uh, with, with quite negative ratings. But I suppose one of the things Keir Starmer will want to uh, avoid is complacency and a sense of apathy as well amongst the voters, because at a time when the public mood is extremely negative on all sorts of issues, and there isn't a lot of enthusiasm for Labour, Labour are miles ahead in the polls, you might find that turnout of the next election is uh, is very weak. But in terms of soft, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, unless unless the Conservatives have a fundamental re-evaluation of the competence of their government and its ability to deliver on public priorities, uh, I don't see the, the polls changing dramatically anytime soon. Scott McGuire? Yeah, I think um, voter apathy, I think, is going to be a real issue going into the next election. But one thing I would say about Keir Starmer and his negative ratings is I think there's actually much more room for him to grow during an election campaign than there is for Rishi Sunak. I'm not saying it will happen, and um, you listen to him talk and you don't necessarily think it will, but actually the public are much more willing to give him 
him the benefit of the doubt. They haven't seen as much of him. And I could see a world in which he does six weeks campaign. People see a lot of him. He comes across as a bit more human and more in tune with their concerns. And you see those ratings improve. And uh, yeah, One of the advantages that Rishi Sunak has over Keir time in terms of looking like a prime minister is he is the prime minister. Yeah. And he gets to stand on the steps of number 10 and all that sort of stuff. There's always a disadvantage for the leader of the opposition. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, right, uh, let's move on to the other parties now. Yeah, I'm not sure about that one. Uh, right, uh, let's look at the other parties. Um, we, we touched on it before a moment ago, but what? why is it that Reform UK's polling, which is the, this is the party owned by Nigel Farage, led by Richard Tice, I and mean, it seems to vary quite a lot in the polls between, what, sort of 5% and 12%, and obviously that's quite a big um, difference. Who wants to try and shed some light on, on that? Kieran, Patrick? Um, I, could, I could make a start. I think that the first thing to say is that these are... You know, when um, pollsters are looking at the support for smaller parties is a challenge. So, um, and different pollsters have different approaches to how they do that. So at Ipsos, our, our polling is on the telephone and that's quite unique in the UK market. And when we ask about who you'll vote for, we ask about whether you'll vote for the Conservatives, Labour, Liberal Democrats, um, Nationalists, if you're in Scotland or Wales, or another party. And if you say another party, you have to then tell us you'll vote Green, Reform, or whoever it might be. And what we're doing there is deliberately setting a bit of a higher bar for smaller parties so as not to uh, overstate their support, which can sometimes happen. I'm, I'm not necessarily accusing anybody else of doing that, <laughs> but that is a challenge. And But at the same time, you do keep these methods under review because there are times when parties like UKIP, let's say, break through and you have to treat them slightly differently. At the moment, Ipsos are the poll that probably has reform at the lowest level. I think our most recent poll had them at four, but it'll be interesting to see as our polling comes out this week whether that's increased with all the focus on immigration. Um, but as I say, you have to keep these you have to keep these things under review. What I would say is that there have only been two by-elections this parliament where reform have cleared five points. And I, I guess if you were if they were looking like they were surging in real in the real world and were on course to do a UKIP the next yeah. general election, maybe you'd expect them to be higher. But again, these things can change as the focus is on immigration. So we'll have to wait and see. Patrick English, how do you gov approach reform? Yeah, I think you can make some great points there. It definitely is a challenge. And at the minute, particularly sort of mid-term, middle of the parliament, there aren't really very many benchmarks or sort of truths we can look to to, to, to see who's right about this. So it is just a case of apply the methods and kind of keep testing them and, and seeing what happens and see what feels and fits right until we get to the election time. Uh, the way we do it is we include reform and the Greens indeed on a, a long list of I believe seven parties plus another on our, on our headline vote intention question. So we poll online, so it's kind of a lot easier and less time consuming for us to be able to do that. And we've tested this and we think that's the right way to do it. We've tried experimental in different ways and we're not convinced that they really get us to the right Figures, so we're, we're we're kind of sticking with that for now. Uh, to, to to take off the Yugoth hat and put on the uh, put on the individual hat on for a minute. Um, I have a hunch about this in terms of why reform might be say up at eleven percent with Yugov and perhaps down at five or whatever with the pollsters, and certainly as Karen so correctly pointed out, not making any waves in by elections or in new council elections in the way that UKIP were when they were polling 12, 13, 14, 15 percent lead up to twenty fifteen. Is that one? It could be a very much a big sort of a protest style vote. Uh, or a protest of vote intention from a lot of very fed up conservative 2019 voters who are saying, I'm just sick of this, I'm sick of this government, I'm sick of immigration not being dealt with, so I'm going to say to these polls, I'm going to vote Reform UK. Also, we believe as well there could be something in the fact that a lot of these voters might not be the ones who turn out 
to by-elections or council elections. They tend to routinely, pretty routinely turn out at general elections. But when it comes to those midterm ballots, when it comes to council elections, they're not as motivated. So that's why perhaps we're not seeing them come out in by-elections and council elections, but they're still telling us, around 10% of them are telling us, that they will go out and vote for Form UK at a general. Uh, so uh, that's reform then. Let's turn our attention to another party who's, uh, you know, in the headline polls is very small, but could play a big difference in the next election. Polling, polling, polling. Yeah, they're getting worse. Uh, the, the SNP. Uh, clearly, you know, when you look at the national the national polls, they're on, what, 5% or something. But, uh, you know, what they do in Scotland is going to make a huge difference to Keir Starmer's prospects of having a, having a majority, Scarlett. Yeah, and I think Keir Starmer will be feeling quite buoyed by that by-election that we had in early October yeah. in Ruskin and Hamilton. And I think there are a lot of question marks about... Because um, Labour's sort of, Labour is hugely up on the polls relative to where it was in 2019 in Scotland. But I think there was a real question about what that would look like at the next election and how many seats they could win. I feel like the swing, the sort of 20-plus point swing we saw towards Labour away from the SNP in Ruskin and Hamilton seemed to be a good indicator that they would be on track to put on a good many more and make it easier for Keir Starmer to get to number 10. And actually, some polls have got them sort of neck and neck in Scotland, which is a yeah. massive turnaround from where they were. Huge. And... I mean, they're on 20% of the vote, 21% of the yeah. vote in 2019. And, uh, and you know, we'd go back to when the SNP had almost every seat in Scotland and suddenly, you know, suddenly sw uh, switching around. Um, I'll tell you what, we'll do one more. Poll. You've got a poll with it. Um, uh, Ipsos Mori, uh, Kieran, uh, you've been looking at ethnic minority poll, which I know has been quite difficult to, to do in the past. But what, what does your... Your, your tracker over some time, uh, tell us about what ethnic minority voters are doing. Very briefly, what we did was we went back to 1996 and took all of our polls and aggregated them into six monthly waves to try and create larger sample size of ethnic minority voters. So around 400 a wave, one wave's January to June, the other's July to December. And just very briefly off the bat, we should say that lumping all of ethnic minorities into one group is imperfect and completely recognise that that doesn't tell the full story within ethnic minority Britons. But at the same time, there is a scarcity of data around, so we think it's useful to have it rather than not in the public domain and try and build on it. So in terms of the numbers, what we show at the moment is that since Rishi Sunak's become Prime Minister, the Labour Party are on 68% with ethnic minority Britons and the Conservatives are on 16%. It's quite a consistent pattern over time that Labour have had large leads. Perhaps the most significant trend, though, is in the first half of 2016, under David Cameron, the Conservatives have reached 30 points. But following the Brexit vote, they've they essentially collapsed in that time to lows of 12% in 2017 and 11% in 2022. So ethnic minority support for the Conservative Party has effectively fallen off a cliff since Brexit. Now, we can't say that solely to do with Brexit, of course, mm. but I think it would be perhaps naive to say it's nothing to do with it. Whereas more recently, um, what Labour have consistently had leads with ethnic minorities, but their support has grown amongst white Britons uh, more recently. But we should acknowledge that white Britons do make up 85% plus of the British population. So I, I don't think we can really class sort of ethnicity as a driver of that. There are other things going yeah, on, yeah. as we talked about today. It's interesting, though. It's interesting, you know, slicing the, different ways of slicing the electorate. Uh, right, before I let you all go, I want, uh, in a single word, or possibly two, when do you think the election is going to be? Uh, Patrick English. Oh, you cruel man. Uh, I've, I've floated back to May. Kieran Pedley. Uh, it depends on events this week, but I'm still going to say roughly around Sunak's two-year anniversary. So, uh, sort of October next year. Scott yeah, McGuire. I was going to say a very broad autumn. 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 <laughs> 
Well, that's, a, that's a season more than a date, but we'll let you off. Uh, that was Patrick English uh, Margin from, of error. from YouGov. Yes, Carla McGuire from JL Partners. Kevin Pedley from Ipsos. Thanks very much for taking us polling in the deep. Right, now you've finished listening to this, head on over to How to Win an Election. Peter Manderson, Polly McKenzie and Daniel Finkelstein. This week discussing money, how political parties get it, who they get it from, what they want in return and what's the best way of spending it. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Welcome back to Two Judgy Girls. I'm Mary from the Bay. And I'm Courtney from L.A. TJG is the podcast where we spill all the tea on your favorite reality TV shows, celebrity gossip, and everything in between. We're here to bring you our unfiltered opinions, hilarious commentary, and plenty of laughs along the way. We're two SDSU Delta Gamma sisters with a microphone and a whole lot of opinions. Each week, we dive headfirst into the wild world of reality television from Bravo to all the trash TV you could want. We break down the drama, dissect the latest scandals, and share our thoughts on everything from the jaw-dropping moments to the embarrassing antics. But that's not all. We're not here to just gossip. We're here to connect with you, the jurors, and share our love of all things pop culture. Whether we're dishing on the latest celebrity breakups, discussing our favorite guilty pleasure movies, or sharing embarrassing stories from our own lives, we promise to keep it real, keep it fun, and keep you coming back for more. Come judge with us. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.